got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Scott Lasser here in the studio. Scott, welcome. Thank you. And thanks for suggesting this great, we've got this great song to get us, I was almost getting ready to dance and not do the, the conversation. I would have loved to have seen that, but I don't think your <laughs> listeners would have enjoyed it exactly <laughs> the sort of the the dance show for the radio is you know it's it's it's, it's, been, it's, a, it's been tried but it didn't work right. yeah. it's a flop it's yeah. been a flop um and scott i should say we're we're talking on monday the 16th of july 2012 um hottest day of the year so far it, damn isn't it <laughs> <laughs> you were saying from the parking garage to here it was you were sweltering even on the the shady and my car said it was 97 but it says that the phone says it's only 94 it's somewhere in there our technology fails us yes right because mm. it's hot it's too hot for the technology too but anyway you're here you braved the heat and um you've come to ann arbor a place that you're quite I familiar love, with yes. <laughs> some old stomping grounds here you know i had some of the best times of my life here probably because i was young but still i like to think ann arbor had something to do with it well you're not such a codger Okay, you, maybe, you know, maybe so, not, so, <laughs> and you said you were going over to Red Hawk and, you know, you have like these, you know, favorite places that you hit when you come to town. Is that, yeah? uh, well, I do. And I'm always willing to find more because it changes every time I come back. That's true. Yeah. State Street. Or, much I guess different. it's changing when I'm not here and I notice the changes when I come back. And Nicholas, this will be the first time reading out there because the last I've, time. I've actually never been. Yeah. So. Oh, this is okay. Mm. In, in um, Westgate center and folks um since you by the time you're hearing this scott will be on to the next reading spot but there'll probably be some signed copies of say nice things about detroit we at better Nicholas. hurry yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but do hurry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so but but drive now you're probably if you're listening in your car you could turn your car towards nicholas now to get the the signed the copy, signed copy. <laughs> of say nice if things. you really want a signed copy you could probably find a way to get one like contact me and send it to me It'd be pretty at, easy at your website yeah, Scott my Lasser website is my email, so com? we can work that out. Okay. I mean, people do that all the time. And you've got a blog on that? You could... Yeah, you know, I write some things, mostly so interviewers like you have something to talk about during the interview. It's true. <laughs> so well, I could... Apparently, there are people who read that blog, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, it's mostly about the writing life, you know, it's, uh, you know, and try to keep it light and happy. And I've been throwing a lot of pictures in there lately, so. Yeah, yeah I noticed that, even from the, the Summer Writers Conference, that you're just fresh from that right and or just, not so fresh yeah, from. <laughs> exactly and i just drove down to you know i was in colorado drove down to denver through the mountains and i mean the scenery is unbelievable you got to take a picture and put it in there right i mean yeah but that's someplace else we can talk and about that Detroit. was the tattered cover right that was tattered that was, cover, and yeah. that was the first reading the the first Second the reading. launch yeah. of the oh the, okay mm -hmm. So you're underway, and now you're here in Ann Arbor to read. You're also going to be coming back, I noticed, on your site in October for the Detroit um, Authors Writing. Right, which is a new event to me, but I guess it's a big deal. I mean, apparently, they get a lot of people there. Yeah, so that'll be something. So you'll be coming back around as well. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I never accept those dates without checking the football schedule. There was a home game in Ann Arbor that weekend, weekend right before, so yeah. Go blue. Exactly. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to read the short blurb on the back of the book that we're going to talk about now, enough about the West, right? We're going to mm -hmm. say nice things about Detroit, a novel by Scott Lasser. Scott Lasser, a native of Detroit, has worked for the National Steel Corporation and Lehman Brothers. He's the author of three novels, including Battle Creek, and currently lives in Aspen, Colorado, and Los Angeles, California. 
Yeah, I mean, we picked those two companies because they've both gone bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. I also In fact, like, is on my website. I say I've, I've worked for about a handful of bankrupt, now bankrupt companies. It's funny that you put it there because I, I mean, it, it's not a good advertisement for hiring you. No, <laughs> um, but also it seems like you might not be looking for a job because you just finished a screenplay for Steve Carell's. Uh, carousel. I, I did. Pretty... I, I hope it'll go better for Steve than it did for Lehman Brothers. Um, <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah, I mean, I, all right. I, we're kind of going in two directions here. First, let me say that that if you grew up and worked in Detroit, you've probably worked for a company that no longer exists. And yes, um, I sold the screenplay rights, and I and actually written a, a script for the movie, um, adapted you know the the book with uh, with a writing partner, Derek Green. Who's another Michigan person? Oh yeah, and also, and he was at the writers' conference with you too. Then apparently, he was. I remember because you put the pictures on your site. The visual memory. Exactly. I, That's funny how that works. It's true. So, but about Detroit. So mm-hmm. you you grew up here. This is like, and well, where did you grow up? Because when people say Detroit, it's even yeah. in the book. Your main character. Like, what is that geography? I I was born in the city. And uh, I spent my formative years in Oak Park, roughly 10 mile. And, uh, and then ultimately my, my, my parents split up when I was very young and my mother remarried and I ended up going to high school in Bloomfield Hills. I lived in Bloomfield Hills. So Detroit, Oak Park, Bloomfield Hills, really my geography. That's sort of a, your triangle there. Well, it's doing what, uh, it's that Northwest migration that happened a lot. It's still happening, I think. And so when you say your formative years, like um, what are your, some of your memories from, I mean, you write about the character you give David, uh, your your main character, um, some of the nostalgia for Detroit of growing up, knowing what the what it's like to feel the snow in the air or the bite of the snow. Um, was it was were those your your memories that you gave yeah. to him? As I- Saying the word nostalgia and Detroit in the same sentence, it doesn't feel right to me. Um, I, Why not? I don't know. I think that one of the things I like about Detroit and Detroiters is they're more real than that. Nostalgia has a certain yellow tint to it, which I don't think we have exactly. Although, I mean, there is certainly a longing for the heyday. You know, Detroit probably hit its zenith, you know, right after World War II, and it's been, it's really been losing population at least since 1950. Um, And you say we, even though you've lived out west and you split your time between Colorado and and California, like you still feel this. I think being a Detroiter is like being. I'm not Irish, but I imagine it's like being Irish. So, you know, the Irish started leaving Ireland in large numbers roughly 1840. And by 1905, there were more first and second generation and actual Im- immigrant Irish living outside of Ireland than lived inside Ireland. And, and now I really, I, I look at the statistics, I believe that there are probably more Detroiters who no longer live in Detroit than who actually do live in Detroit. But what is it about that for you with Detroit, yeah, I, that identification? You know, I, you know these, the, um, you know, talking to, to members of the Detroit diaspora, because there really is one, what I find is that, that everybody has a longing for the place that I think is really a longing for home. And the book is really about that. You know, it's a book is about finding your way home. And, and I think that all these, you know, million people or so who have, who have left the city or, or living somewhere else have that, that feeling for it. I think they root for it in a way that people from who left other cities don't. There is a, you, know, you might call it a camaraderie of shared suffering. 
I mean, people, I, I mean, I feel a certain longing and despair for Detroit. You know, I want it to be better. I love the place. And I feel a lot of despair about this really great city that's fallen on such hard times. I also think we're probably, I don't, you know, we'll take years to know this, but I think we're at an inflection point now that, you know, in these period of years, not like this exact second, but things to me feel as though they are finally changing, that it isn't, um, the story isn't going to be a one-way story anymore. And maybe it's because we've hit the point where everybody's kind of left and Detroit's kind of a tabula rasa. You can make it whatever you want now. And there are people moving back there and making it something new. And I think the book's very much about that. It seems hopeful because two of the characters who, you know, grew up there, went to high school there, have end up returning. You know, if you're in some other city and you say you're from Detroit, I mean, even outside of the country, people know about Detroit. Mm -hmm. You say you're from Detroit and they, they offer condolences as though your father just died. And you, know, you want to say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm proud of that fact. Like, I don't want your sympathy. It's like, and you know, my view is kind of to hell with that. It's like a great thing about, you know, I have to, had to make this book video, which I guess we can talk about. The publishers want you to do now. But I think one of the things I say in there is that the thing I love about Detroiters is their can-do toughness. You know, you're, the phrase, it can't get any worse, has no meaning in Detroit, right? It, of course it can. Yeah, but that and it often does. And it often does. But that doesn't stop anybody from living their life. And I think this book is about that. It's about making your life in a place where no one thinks you can make a life. And and, and you, to tell this story, you also have a murder, like a, or two murders that, that open the book, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, we're talking about violence and things that are, are hard and loss, um, as well as a way of it's coming not, home. The right? Chamber of Commerce is probably not going to use this as an advertisement. But that doesn't... Although think, the title, <laughs> well, yeah, if but, you don't know where it comes from. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, the title comes indirectly from the Emily Gale promotional campaign of basically the late 70s, um, saying nice things about Detroit with the fun runs and the ice cream socials, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, just in case you're wondering how long Detroit's had has realized it had an image problem. But, um, you know, I took it from the t-shirt, which we've talked about, the... The T-shirt shows a sort of scary-looking dude in a wife-beater T-shirt and sunglasses, wearing a leather glove, holding a pistol to a dog's head, and underneath is a "Say nice things about Detroit," implying "or I'll shoot the dog," which to me just captures. And the dog looks like Benji a little. Yeah, the dog is like pretty <laughs> clueless about this whole thing, and uh, and you know I just felt like that captured Detroit in a really great way, both that sort of fatalism, dark humor, but also hey, it is what it is. Yeah, it's Detroit. And where did you first see the T-shirt? Can you, know, you remember? Yeah, I can remember. Was, I think it was about 150 feet from where I'm sitting right now. I, I remember seeing it in a store on State Street in Ann Arbor. Now, I didn't actually first see it in Detroit, and I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I didn't buy it, but I thought it was very funny. That was my next question. I ha- as a student, I had no money. Exactly. <laughs> you just came by it. And, and I'm like, someday I'm going to use that. I actually thought, someday I'm going to have to use that as a title. Yeah. Did you put it in your, did you have a writer's notebook at the time as a student? Were you walking around? Oh, you know, I've, I've had writer's notebooks that I've lost in all sorts of different towns and cities. I just have never forgotten it. Let's take a short break. When we come back, Scott will read um, from Say Nice Things About Detroit. So come on back. We'll take a short break. You've got living writers.
starts out with Brother Wayne Kramer. Brother Wayne stop that one. Um, welcome back to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Scott Lasser is here. Um, his novel, Say Nice Things About Detroit. And damn it, we will. We'll say other things. It kills us. <laughs> Which you might. Uh, so yeah. so um, let's talk a little bit about well, um, do you, the epigraphs that you chose for the, the, the front of the book. Let's... Yeah, I took one from John Sinclair, who you know has a real Ann Arbor connection because there was a benefit concert from here that actually got him out of jail. He was the, you know, if you look him up in, in Wikipedia today, he's still alive and doing things. He's, he's listed as a poet, which I just don't think captures the full story. So he is, um, you know, sort of an agent, uh, provocateur of the sixties and seventies. And he, um, you know, he was the manager of the MC five and, uh, and he was ultimately um, arrested and sentenced to 10 years in jail for giving, not selling, giving two joints of marijuana to a young woman who turned out to be a police officer. Um, but it's That's one of those things where you think, you know, that huh? they were, the government was just watching, like they wanted a reason. And like for him, because they thought oh, they, that he was they were like clear, an instigator. They yeah, were clearly this, going after him. Yeah. There were, there were um, you know, FBI files, the MC5 playing concerts and stuff. It's just, it's, it's so, it's hard to fathom, but you know, paranoia. Runs deep, right? It's great to see. Have you seen on YouTube some of the clips of them just at West Park here and the play? It's just. It's... I haven't. I will say that I, I, I watched some YouTube clips of uh, Mitch Ryder not long ago, right before I had to do a reading. I said, I get psyched up for this thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, should, you should have some music <laughs> right. right before. But anyway, I was, I was watching this BBC uh, documentary about Detroit. It's called Requiem for Detroit. I mean, leave it. The British have to figure out that, that this is a good subject, right? Mm. And. Um, and Sinclair was interviewed throughout, and at the end of the interview, he he said this thing. I said, "Man, I I have to put that in the book." And um, he was sitting on the grass. Would you read it for yeah. us so we can? Yeah, he was sitting on the grass in front of the Grandy Ballroom where the MC5 used to play, now defunct. And he said this: "You think of Detroit in the modern period as a huge, vast African American ghetto. It's like New Orleans after the flood. Detroit has been through all this, and they didn't even have a natural disaster. It just got washed over by America." Like, how could you not use that? So poet he yeah, is, right? And and the other epigram was um, from Stanley Christmas. The uh, he ran for mayor last time out. He did not win. Uh, and he was when he he was uh, told by reporters that the uh, the murder rate in Detroit had dropped by fourteen percent. And he said, "I don't mean to be sarcastic, but there just isn't anyone left to kill." So those two to me kind of said it all. I like to look at epigrams when I'm going to buy a book because it tells me what's important to the writer. And then I like to read the first page and I figure from there I'll know whether I like the book or not. So when did you decide on those two for this Say Nice Things when About Detroit? When I first Detroit? heard them. You know. What part, had you finished, what part of this, the um, writing process were you in with the novel? The the Christmas quote I'd, I think was, that might have predated me actually writing the novel or it was very at the beginning. And uh, 
um, the Sinclair quote, I was writing the novel and researching at the same time. And that just, you knew. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Sinclair quote that I learned later was that from the, you know, there's, we have these census figures that the U.S. takes a census every 10 years. And it turns out that between 2000 and 2010, Detroit lost 100,000 more people than New Orleans. And no Katrina here. So he was, he was right on. Like, I doubt he knew that statistic, but actually the, the government numbers back him up of all ironies. Although, you know, but uh, Sinclair, he probably did know it, actually. He might I think have. he I, know. I, I think know. he maybe makes it his business. Or, like, I guess if you're around, you, you know. Um, hopefully some of the people um, moved rather than getting killed. Though. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely. It's, <laughs> right? absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all about. <laughs> it's, I mean, actually. It's devastation is, is devastation. You know, people, I mean, the reason they move very simple is for jobs. Right, it's just work. It's all about work, and so the whole reason Detroit became a huge uh, populated city was about work, and then reversed. But you know, I'm picturing a car like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that nobody talks about is it doesn't take that many people to build a car anymore. You go to the DIA in Detroit and you look at that Rivera mural, and there's people crawling all over these machines, right. and you can understand how all these people had to move here to work in these factories, and. Uh, and now it's automated. And now it's so automated that even you can pump out the same units, and you need a fraction of the people. Yeah, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. It I mean, been, it's it would have been nice if there were a different industry operating here, but yeah, I wonder what is next. I mean, there are, like you said, there is, um, there's people being drawn back. They're trying to keep um, younger people there from, well, it, can, it can be like anything I mean, look there you know quick and loans move there because the, the guy who owns it dan gilbert's a detroiter and he decided you know he because he believes in it he like, be, like he believes he in it and it's going to take more of that but yeah I, I mean hey it's cheap i mean for for all i know that you could do a good call center there and we wouldn't have to call india every time you want to make a plane reservation that would i would much prefer to call detroit wouldn't you well yeah. yes i'm biased for detroit as well <laughs> i want to i want to see it uh do do great things well mm -hmm. well scott let's um let's hear some okay okay i think it makes sense just to read uh, a couple pages from the open because then i don't have to explain where we are in the story so this is chapter one 2006 they fled tom phillips to orlando brady johnson to dallas jeff lombardo to chicago tim forrester to la david couldn't think of a single friend from high school who still lived in detroit or anywhere near it David himself had moved to Denver, but now he was back. It was the very first morning of his return that he noticed the photos. A light-skinned black man and a blonde woman, side by side in the free press, front page and above the fold. Recognition came slowly, then suddenly. He took the paper and sat down to study it. Three nights ago, these two had been gunned down in an E-class Mercedes just north of Greektown. A dozen shots fired at close range. The paper identified the male victim, Dirk Burton, as a retired FBI agent. The woman was Natalie Brooks. The paper speculated on what they were doing in a place and car like that, on whether the killing was racial, which was doubted by a police source, who said violence against interracial couples tended not to happen in black neighborhoods. Perhaps the cops didn't yet know they were brother and sister. David dated Natalie in high school, a two-year affair that fell apart when they went to different colleges. Natalie was the serious love of his youth, maybe his life, unforgettable still. Evans was the family name. David recalled when, as a teenager, he pulled a Chevy into the Evans' driveway and parked behind a large black Mercedes with fat wheels and tinted windows. Natalie walked out of the house with a black man, tall and broad-shouldered. He moved with an athlete swagger. This is my brother, Dirk, Natalie said. 
David had known Natalie since she was 14, and there had never been mention of a brother, black or otherwise. The Evans sisters were blonde. They would have been considered fair in Sweden. In the milky summer light, on the edge of adulthood, David sensed there was an awful lot going on in the world he had no idea about. He learned that Natalie, her sister Carolyn, and Dirk shared the same mother, Tina, a German immigrant who'd made her way to Detroit in the 50s. Later, Natalie related the story of Dirk's birth. Rushed to the hospital when her water broke, Tina was wheeled from the white ward to the black when the father showed up. Then as now, half white was black. It was the one time David met Dirk. He showed David the Mercedes. They leaned in the car through opposite doors, their heads together in front of the German sound system. The vehicle, seized from a drug dealer and pushed into service for Dirk's undercover work, was a more expensive portable stereo system than automobile. You can't believe what these dopers spend money on, Dirk said. Then he turned up the bass till the vibrations made David's sternum hum. Dirk looked a little older in the newspaper photo. It had been 25 years. His hair now shaved down to stubble. Natalie was still beautiful, blonde and angular. It was hard to think of them as dead. Natalie especially. It was as if his youth had died with her. Thanks, Scott. So was that scene that you read for us, was that part of the the origin of what first came to you about the story, or, or how did it start? Yeah, I would argue that that's maybe the one autobiographical part of the book. I had a girlfriend who was very blonde, who one day walked out of a house with a black brother, who I had no idea existed. I was older than David is in the story. I, I was in my mid-20s, and I remember thinking I had no idea what was going on in the world. I was supposed to be an adult. And there was this drug dealer car, you know, dual chrome exhaust, tinted windows, souped up, fat wheels. And the brother was, in fact, an undercover FBI agent. So I was like, man, I got to use that. And like any good novelist, I thought about it for a little while and like two and a half decades. And then I figured out how to put it in a book. So that's the that's the idea, like the germination of the idea well, that I think, you sort of have been and, um, and knowing that you wanted to be in Detroit. I think knowing that I wanted to write about Detroit meant that I wanted to write about race. Because I don't think you can do one and not the other. Or you can't write about, you can certainly write about race and not write about Detroit, but I don't think you can write about Detroit and not write about race. And uh, and this this man seemed to weigh in because he had his, as I say in the book, he had his own personal eight mile, right? Ran right through the family. So um, so he seemed like a good character as a way to, to do white and black Detroit. And so was it... So what was it that you, so this is like a piece from the autobiography of your, your, your story. And then how did you I should say that start? the real man had, you know, from, from this point on, there's no similarities in, to his story at all, but. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I, the fiction of mm-hmm. it, right. Was there, I wondered also in the research of the book, um, if you had, if there was a, a, a brother, sister murder or, cause I was wondering where the made, made that up. Mm-hmm. my job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You make things up. You work with it. Write, write every day. It's very simple. Okay. So your <laughs> writing process. So yeah. how do you, how, how do you work? Are you, are you try you write every day? Oh, uh, well, I'm going to be honest and traveling all around. I haven't gotten a lot done, but yeah, if I'm not, if I'm, I'm able to, I would, um, particularly when I'm writing a first draft for me, it's like pedaling a bike. You have to just keep going and don't stop. Um, so I don't take days off seven days a week, give myself a word quote. I make sure I write that. I try not to worry about whether I think it's good or not because I never think it's good. So if I was worrying about good, I'd never get anything done. Figure I can fix it later. It's a great thing about writing. You're not performing, you're writing, you can change it. Nobody will see. And you're in your workspace. You're alone. No one has to see it. (laughs) Let's hope not. (laughs) 
It's it's like sausage. You don't want to know what goes in there. No, no. And so, so for this story, were you also as you're writing it, um, are you researching it? Because you mentioned wa- watching the BBC documentary. Yeah, I think sometimes. I mean, obviously, you like to do some research first. Or, but, but for yeah, what's but, the rhythm? But the more you you get in, the more you you know, the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. And and you know, I was spending time, and then I really that documentary. It came to me because I met, you know, this happens all the time. I met some guy in Los Angeles who was from, he's a musician, actually. He was from Detroit. And there were two documentaries. The one he was really excited about and actually the one that's much more fun to watch is the BBC did a documentary about Detroit music called Motor City Burning. You know, uh, Detroit, you know, music from the titles, the subtitles, roughly Motown to the Stooges. Mm. And, uh, And that was a lot of fun and great to watch. And what, um, going back to something that you said, mm-hmm. um, Scott, what, what's something that as you went through this, that you didn't know that then you did the research on, what were some of those moments? Well, you know, some of the stuff that's not in the book, you know, the basics of the 43 riot, you know, nobody really talks about that anymore, but it was a big ride in Detroit in 1943. Um, you know, founding of the city. You know some of the stats that that you know I could reel off now, which had, are really not in the book, and a lot of that I didn't even come to till after I'd written it. But they seemed to they made me feel com- comfortable. I'd gotten more or less the thing right. And then you know Detroit in a different way because it's something to be born somewhere and then have sort of that like the sensory knowledge of a place. And you said like your formative years, and then it's something else entirely to come to it as its own idea of itself and what it and then the facts of it sort of right. it sounds like you know, i think that when i was growing up you know everybody you know there was a lot of pride about the place that you know it did like this was the city that um that won world war ii right the arsenal of democracy it was the place where the you know i, I would argue it's the place where the american middle class was created when henry ford decided to pay five bucks a day two, yeah. instead of 270 which was the going rate i mean that was a big deal and so you know a lot of and, and I think Detroit and the Midwest in general, basically people who are open, hardworking, um, tough, don't give up. All these things that we want to think of as American are really, to me, Midwestern and very much embodied in Detroit. And so I, I've, you know, I have a lot of pride in that. It's like I, I meet somebody somewhere else from the Midwest. I, I actually, I mean, maybe this is prejudice, but I just feel like I can trust that person a little bit more to do what he says he's going to do than somebody from the, one of the coasts. Really? Yeah, I know. Don't, okay. Don't play this on the East coast. coast and West Coast listeners. Especially, especially, <laughs> especially, uh, yeah. Some of your neighbors in LA, for example, are no, like, that's Scott. They'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, there's a great line in Get Shorty where the guy says, I told him I'd think about it. What does that mean in this town anyway? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take we're gonna take a short break and then we'll be back and maybe we'll know by then. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Scott Lasser is here. His novel "Say Nice Things About Detroit." We'll be right back.
it's kind of painful to turn off a reefa, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> but we have to to do the station ID. I think you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, um, and I know Aretha. She's she's just a wonder. She is. She's uh, um, today on Living Writer Scott Lasser is here. Say nice things about Detroit, his novel, and thank you to Text for Text for engineering for us and. Uh, and playing these particular tunes. Um, and thanks to Scott Lasser for writing a novel about Detroit, um, set in Detroit, and about finding your way back home. Fair enough. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So um, the book itself, I wish we could beam this out to everyone so they could see it, is is beautiful. Like It's funny. I almost thought you were going to put the, the T-shirt of the, the guy with the dog. <laughs> Yeah, they say nice things about Detroit with them, yeah. But this might be, this is kind of also more, it complicates it, because then it's more of a surprise when you get the... Your listeners will probably not be surprised to know that the writers don't really pick the covers, but you have, you probably have one veto if you really hate something. Was this, was this okay? Was this the first thing they showed you? Yeah, what I always do is is I show it it to... It shows houses. I show it to, um, you know, if I can find four or five women who will talk to me and whose opinion I... I know I can trust. I show it to them because... Are they from the Midwest? They don't have to be. It doesn't really matter. It just has to be... Do I'm not going to let that go. Do women like it? Because if women th- say, yeah, that's good, then you got a good cover. And if women say, I don't like that cover, you have a bad cover because the reality is women buy most of the novels. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, probably 80%. Really? Yeah. Okay, I don't mean to sound doubting. I just thought everybody by it. Well, you have a show on writers. I would thought you. Yeah. Would, no, I don't. I don't ever know. I. I mean, it took me a while to learn how tall Mount Rainier was, and I love that mountain. So, um, okay, let's talk about blurbs. How okay. you've got some nice ones on here. Um, Thomas Lynch, Elmore Leonard. Uh, how does one go about? You've got your nice cover now. What do you put on the back of it, Scott? Yeah. Well, the uh, the publisher decides uh, whom you should ask. And maybe you throw out a name or two yourself. It'd be great if we could get Elmore Leonard, you know. I don't know how, but it'll be great. Because have you read all his books? Did you grow up reading him? Uh, Did I, you... have, I have not read all his books because he has and written, get shorty and... he's written too many books. I mean, I'll, maybe I'll get through them all someday. I've read a lot of them. Um, and I just thought, you know, his connection to Detroit made him somebody I wanted. And in, in fact, you know, all of these, all the people who board the book, um, with the exception of Colin McCann, have, um, have some real connection to Detroit. Yeah. Thomas Lynch, friend of the show. Yeah, actually, you know, I have an interesting, um, interesting connection with him. I mean, let me go back to the story about what the publisher asked and then we'll go. Do. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll go to that. The, the publisher says, all right, we're going to do this. And then I got this time, you know, in the past, that was kind of it. And then you see who responded. But this time, because every time you publish a book, it becomes slightly more shameless and more humiliating. It just, it is what it is. They ask you to write to the writers and say, hey, can you please actually blurb the book? So, you know, I found myself. That seems like part of their job, actually, as promoting the book. I found myself writing these letters and feeling, and I wrote them and then I felt like I needed to take a shower because it just, ugh. But McGuane, I had some history with McGuane because when I was getting my MFA here at Michigan, he came and read and uh, Nick Delbanco asked me if I could, head of the program, uh, at least at the time, asked me if I could um, take McGuane back to the airport. He needed to go, I think, right after his reading. And I'm like, 
Yeah, sure. It's like this like Ford Escort, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen McGuane. He's a tall guy. I bet. Did he have to fold himself into he the front seat? He was folded in the front seat of that <laughs> car. And also I had my friend, that, who now is the same guy I wrote the screenplay with, Derek Green. I, I said, hey, you want to take McGuane to the airport? And he's like, yeah. Because it's nice because you have a few minutes to talk to the, the writer. Is, Probably, yeah. It's not a few minutes. It's whatever it is. It's 25, 30 <laughs> minutes to the airport where the guy is caught with you and he needs you to get him there. So Nick did you, Nick Tolbanko like, was doing you like a he favor might, there, he Scott. He might as well have been in handcuffs, you know? <laughs> So anyway, it was right after the Hopwood Awards, and Derek and I had both won one. Those are the you know big Michigan writing awards, and everybody knows what they are. Okay. <laughs> I I don't know. So um, but there you know there were two writers, and one was Ron Hansen, and the other and he's lovely. He is, yeah. and he was lovely in his comments. And the other one was a, a woman whose name I'm not going to mention on the show, but she was truly nasty, nasty, and so. We were joking around like... Wait, but you won, though. We won. Wait, I'm, what did I nasty. miss here? She was nasty to everybody. Oh. Winners, losers. Like, she just tailored her nastiness like the winners had slightly less nasty than the... <laughs> it was nasty. It was actually nasty. Maybe she was... I'm and sorry. So, I shouldn't uh, laugh. But <laughs> anyway. Okay, but go on. So you're in the Ford Escort, hurtling right. towards... Hurtle, hurtling towards <laughs> Metro. And uh, we started, uh, you know, joking about what she'd said. And... This is, you know, an interesting comment on the story and also on Derek and, and my friendship. Um, I remember McGuane saying, what a bitch, which really stuck with me because I'd never heard a writer say something bad about another writer. Derek remembers him saying something else that I could not say in mixed company uh, or on the radio. And uh, we still argue about that. So now, fast forward a couple decades later, I've got to write McGuane and ask him to write a blurb. And you want to jog his memory about this, too, probably. You bet I do, because I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm as desperate as any other guy trying to publish a novel. So... I write McGuane and I say, um, you ask him, you know, nicely. And then I say, like, I know you don't remember me, but uh, we have actually met because I once gave you a ride to Metro and the ride was very memorable for reasons I'm not going to go into here. And I go, I do want to point out that you arrived safely and on time. I get a letter back from McGuane and it says, um, okay, but you need to get me the book. Cause apparently my, my, they hadn't even sent it to him. No, they'd sent it to him, but it, it like went through his agent. The agent oh. never forwarded it on, so he actually never got the book. I don't know where he really was. We were sending it to New York. I think he's still in Montana. So um, so anyway, he got the book, and he wrote this really beautiful blurb. And so that's the story of the McGuane blurb, which I that's one of my favorite stories of the whole book publishing process. It just never works like that. And it's nice, too, because it's actually this the the time that passed you were such a it was such a different time of your life when you last saw him and now you're writing a letter was it an old-fashioned letter or or was it an email uh i wrote him a old-fashioned letter which i mailed and he which i put my email on and he responded to me with an email okay so but it is it's kind of, it's the nice way of the world. That they yeah. <laughs> i am still learning the way of the world <laughs> <laughs> but this well this is great this is really great so wait now we did have a what was that other thread where i said we'll go back to that well i don't know if you can remember it that would be great but now listeners to, you're, you're out you're there asking, are like asking me to remember your what, thread what was the thread hey hey you could have generated the thread too mister over there um but anyway so when you say why do you write then? Because it sounds like, do you, are you, is it a compulsion for you, Scott? Because you do, you talk about it as, you know, it's, I'm 
you know, another guy desperate to sell a novel. Like, you know, there's this business aspect of it that is can be hard. Um, well, well, I mean, you know, give me a little slack. The book was published two weeks ago. I'm thinking very much right now about the business aspect because I've already written it. Um, and I mean, I think that really the reason that, I mean, obviously you want to make money, but really I just want the publisher to be willing to publish the next one, right? I'm already writing that one. So you're always worried about that. Um, you know, the advice I got at Michigan was if you can stop writing, stop. It's good advice. I just have never was been that able. Was that in the MFA program? Yeah, well, somebody said that in a talk. I remember that. And I thought, ah, that's pretty good advice, but I've never really been able to stop. So, um, so I write, I think I'm just trying to write the book that I would want to read if I weren't a writer, you know, because that's how, you know, Saul Bellow said that writers are readers who are moved from admiration to emulation. And that is, that was certainly my process. You know, I fell in love with reading. Um, and well, when I was in college, I never took English in college. I just read novels and I was the only person I knew read novels and weren't assigned in class. And, uh, were you reading contemporary fiction then, or were you reading sort of going through the classics on your own, even uh, though you weren't in those, the, the English literature classes? You know, I, I read a lot. I don't, rem I just remember the first two and this will give you a, a hint. I mean, the first book I read was the world according to Garb. Oh, I John saw, Irving. Okay. I was, I was flying home from my freshman year and like five people on the plane I was on were reading that book. I'm like, I better check that out. There was really nothing more than that. And I love that. And then. The next book I read, I think because it was there, which was also just a fantastic book, was uh, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. And so after those two, I figured, very different, but both great. And I've never stopped. And then after doing that for a few years, I started writing. And that was really the process. And and that was happening during college years. So when you were a kid, were you, you, did, you didn't like go to the public library and sort of get about, like it, it really, something happened for you in college with that, when, with the reading. Yeah, I was a, I was a jock. Yeah, you know? that's. I sometimes that happens for guys, doesn't it? Because they're well, I would have been reading, but I was playing baseball, or I was. Well, if I weren't doing that, I would have been doing something else that probably <laughs> wasn't reading. Um, but yeah, I came back to it. And when did well, the? I mean, what's? I ask you, what's more satisfying? I mean, please, you know. Then reading or or throwing yeah, the ball it. like yeah, throwing well, the ball no, catch. Reading. I, I mean, like catch too. Yeah, I, I do. I do too. It's Don't very, get me wrong. I it's still like, you can meditate. I I still love sports, not claiming otherwise. Like, like you know, I, have a, I have a good friend in this town who's a sports writer, John Bacon. Have you ever had him on your show? So you know, we always you know I talk about sports all the time. I'm I'm very much a fanatic. I'm just saying that storytelling is really important to the human existence, and that one of the best ways to ingest those stories, if you will, is through a novel. You just you get a, an immediacy with a character you don't get in any other medium. I love movies. I really love some of the television that's coming out now. But um, but still, there's nothing like a novel. Because it's also something what's happening in the mind of the person that is connecting to the reading itself, it asks, right? The imagination. It asks the, more, but it gives more, right? And sometimes, and if something's authentic, then you can really, it does, it resonates in a different way. And it, and it makes us more human. Let right? us hope, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll thinking about being more human let's talk about hollywood <laughs> so what, less human so what is, what is it like doing the you've done the screenplay already for say nice things about detroit well can you talk about a little like what were this what was the process for that the was there a large transformation or did you yeah i mean you like? know anytime you adapt a book you, you 
Look, anytime you write a book, you have to make choices. But when you have to adapt the book, you really start making choices because you just don't have that much time. So you have to really condense and decide what you're going to focus on. So we obviously cut a lot of things out of the book. We changed the time scheme. Was it helpful to have Derek helping you because he yeah, I, hadn't written it? You know what I mean? That that sort of that could he be sort of more have an incision in there? Right. And I think it was helpful. Let's put it the other way. Let's say if he were assigned to adapt, it was helpful to have me, but not for the reasons you would think. For instance, we have we cut a character, an important character, just not in the not in the movie, and we did Who? that. Um, Natalie. The dead sister, gone. It was too complicated. And okay, so and she's so we, in the car, but she doesn't. There's no backstory for her. No, there is no Natalie. So there's just a, there's just the Carolyn. So only Dirk dies in the car, and and it doesn't happen in the past. It happens in the present, and that way you can streamline it through. I think that if he were doing that without me, he might have had some qualms about doing that. But me, it's my character. Yeah, get rid of her. Fine, be better. And I, th- I really think it was better. So having the having the, the novelist involved allows a certain freedom to get rid of things that were in the novel. Yeah, big moves. Did it make you think why was Natalie there to begin with, or no? It's just a different no, animal I, in a way. I, I just think the book has more layers, as, and as it should. Let's take a short break. We'll come back and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this. You've sure. got living writers today on the program. Scott Lasser, his novel "Say Th- Nice Things About Detroit." I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back yes you know many nights you sometimes you get so depressed you just go in your room when you lock up and just want nobody see you crying and nobody can see you just try your blues away Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Scott Lasser is here. His novels say nice things about Detroit. And when we were on break, Scott, you were just saying, what about these? Where are the Detroit novels, right? Yeah, where the heck are they? Um, you know, one of the, I, I was trying to read all of them. It's not hard to do it because there aren't that many. It, 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 it's baffling to me why there are not more. 
Because even Elmore Leonard, right? He's not well, saying Leonard, things necessarily. Well, he's written a you know a number that that are very revolve around Detroit, like um, well, Mr. Paradise, uh, Freaky Deaky, Out of Sight. You know, they're they're out there. They're more. Um, you know, Middlesex, Jeffrey Eugenie's Middlesex is in some ways an epic novel of Detroit. Yes. I mean, there is that whole hermaphrodite thing he's got going on there. But there's awesome. a, lot, a lot of it is a lot of it's about Detroit. And, uh, you know, Joyce Carol Oates won the National Book Award with them, which was published in 1970. Um, she has written about Detroit, but not recently. And it seems to me that uh, if you want to, let's call it the modern period, there isn't a lot. And I, I find that baffling. I, I mean, it. Can you, I can't think of a better setting. You know, stories are about trouble. Detroit's got trouble. It's a perfect place to set a novel. And so it... Conflict it w- galore. Right. It was really surprising to me um, that there aren't more. I guess if your listeners know of other ones, I'd love to hear about them because I would definitely want to read them. Scottlasserbooks.com. Yeah, exactly. You can find me there. So say th- nice things about Detroit is on the shelves. And so maybe this will actually then be like you're throwing down the gauntlet now today on right, living writers right more <laughs> right. yeah well okay i mean I'm, I'm hoping i will but you know it, it's one man can only write so many books if you're joyce carol Oates, you can write them like every three months <laughs> but uh, the rest of us need time <laughs> well i don't know I think, and you're a capricorn so you've got that stubbornness you're gonna be able to you know you'll produce them you yeah, can do it <laughs> you had to reveal that on the air huh? <laughs> exactly <laughs> Sorry about that. But well maybe some of the maybe the, some of the stories are being told through music. Is that like a way like maybe they're not the novels but well, there's the I, I mean I have music throughout this book. I, I I wanted this book to really feel like Detroit. So that was that was you know sight obviously in the way it looks but also the way it feels, the way it smells, the way you know the 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 quality of the light. You know like Chrysler is doing these ads now imported from Detroit and they you know, when the first one of those came out and I saw this car driving down the street before you could really identify what city it was, I knew it was Detroit from the light. I'm like, that's Detroit. Definitely. And it was. And, and, uh, and yes, I think that, that I wanted to have that, um, that feel of the place, the weather. And I also wanted the music because I just feel like the thing that really, to me, the thing that's, let me go back and say I'm trying to figure out why I'm so proud of this place. It doesn't really make a lot of intellectual sense to me, but I definitely feel that music is behind it. And so I wanted to have music throughout the book. And then I put this one paragraph in the book that sort of summed up the music. I had to leave some people out, but I I put it in there. And um, my editor wanted to cut it, and I insisted that it stay in the book. And actually, a number of reviewers have mentioned it, so I figure it's probably in the right place at the right time. How is that? Was that odd to you that the the editor one of the suggestions for cuts was the the music? I just, she's from Cleveland, and I just think it's a Cleveland jealousy thing. You know, they got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but we actually got the music. So it's my theory. But Cleveland's another one of those those cities. When you were saying people can be fiercely proud of of a place, Cleveland has that going on well, too. It's a, you know, I, I'm but a, I didn't know there was the jealousy with the music. Well, I, I'm I actually made that up. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> That's, that's a, how things start. It's a theory. Scott, yeah, it's a theory. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, pride in the Midwest, and there should be. I'm glad you kept that, the the, the music in there. And it seems like, um, and I'm not sure if this is where that same line surfaces with the, the, the musicians being named, um, but where you're saying maybe when there's a time when there aren't any more cars left, that, that the music will still be 
um, yeah, that would be that would be great if you if you can you find the page. I, I believe that I can. Okay, I might have it dog-eared here too. Um, but yeah, I've, I've got it. You got it. Okay. So this is the paragraph at which I'm just you know, just change it slightly so we don't give any of the plot away. How's that? So the radio played music that had been new when he was young, but was now called classic. Mitch Ryder, Bob Seger, Glenn Fried, Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, Detroiters all. Even to himself, it was hard, It was difficult for David to explain the pride he felt in his city, but certainly the music was behind it. Throw in John Lee Hooker and Aretha Franklin and Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, Smokey Robinson, and the rest of Motown, the jazz of Carter, Burrell, and Henderson, the power of the MC5 and the Stooges, the pop of Madonna, and the current efforts of Richie, Mathers, and White, and you could argue that what the Motor City really made, the thing that would last long after the Rensen had crumbled into the river and the world no longer needed cars, was music. And so were you listening to music all the time as part of this, the writing? So to have that, um, like, the, like the, the, the rhythm of it going... Uh, I was listening uh, to music all the time during the, my formative years. I still <laughs> right. do. Um, I, I'm one of those writers who doesn't listen to music while he's writing because I feel like it distracts me. Um, I know a lot of writers do listen to music though, but you were saying before you go to the reading, you were going to maybe listen to some Richie. Was that? Oh, I, I did actually <laughs> before my very first event, you know, you're, you're always most nervous for the first one. Cause you got your spiel, but you don't know how it's going to play. You haven't done it for a crowd before. So I was listening to, um, to Mitch Ryder, you know, like I'd, I'd never seen a Mitch Ryder clip. I'd only heard the music. So I, I, might, I bet that's on YouTube, which it is. And, uh, and that was kind of like, that was good. I got me kind of pumped up. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, like I love music. I love Detroit music. And I thought that, I, I mean, I do think it's very important that the city still, and that the city is underestimated. You don't think of Detroit as an artistic place, but it is. Oh, I think it's super artistic. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think people are starting to actually recognize that. I mean, people outside of the bounds. I think people who live in some of the communities there, they know that they've... The, and artists are always one of the first groups like to come sort of to uh, come back to certain neighborhoods and start um, let, reinvesting let me, like some something in let, them. Let me address themselves. that because I, I recently heard two really interesting stories about that. One was a friend of mine who was actually a radio person and he was in Madison, Wisconsin, and he met these um, young women in a bar, as he is wont to do, and they were graduating. So he asked them, well, what are you going to do after you graduate? And they said, go to Detroit. We're going to move to Detroit to yes. be artists. Oh, to be. Oh, we're going to move to Detroit to be artists. When in your life have you ever heard somebody say that I'm going to Detroit to be an artist? I've never heard that. That's I was a like, beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And then um, Patty Smith was giving a talk. I think it was actually a, a, a graduate commencement speech. And she was saying that um, the reason she and Mabel Thorpe went to New York, as she described in her book, Just Kids, uh, was because it was cheap. And that if we were doing it today, she'd go to Detroit. So there you go. Yes. You know. Here, here, Patty Smith. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. Mm. Well, you can see the Detroit pride. You can, you can see. So, so, um, so maybe you will move back because especially if you're going to keep writing, if you're going to every year write this, det- another far stranger Detroit things have novel. happened in my life. Believe me. <laughs> yeah. Start, start looking. Um, okay. So we, we haven't talked a lot about, we've talked around the book. Um, 
So maybe let's think about this. When you were structuring the book, because there's a murder in the opening um, part, we know that there's going to be that element that's involved in the book. And then you said before our last break that one of the people that were murdered were there when, when you were writing the screenplay, you dropped it out. What were some other elements when you were transforming the book into the like what you might work for the the film screen? What um what well, how, yeah, how did you You know, you have like I said, limited space. There's a structure to your basic Hollywood movie that you sort of have to make the story fit, which we did. We were writing for a specific actor, so we had to we did some things that were requested all. Who was the actor? Or who is the actor? The actor is Steve Carell. Not known for drama, and this is definitely not a comedy. I would like to think the book is actually quite funny, but it's not a comedy. Huh. And uh you know, he's looking to do a dramatic role. I mean, which I I definitely think he can do. If you've seen Little Miss Sunshine, for example, you know, he does not yeah. that's not a comedic role for he's, him. He's got the dark side. Right. Yeah. And so um but there were definitely things that, that you know, his people wanted. We dealt we were working with them and um and I actually thought they were very good. I you know, you you hear a lot of horror stories about that, but these guys really had a, a great sense of story. And we worked together and got how they wanted it. Um you know the the book has a uh, alternating time sequence that's twelve years apart, and the movie does not. And I think that was, aside from losing the the one character, that was really the big difference that we brought everything up to present tense, which I think is better in a movie. Oh, so there aren't and there aren't flashbacks then. Okay. Just the whole periods that take place in a different time does does not exist in the movie. We brought, like I said, we brought everything, brought everything forward, forward. To, to to present day. And when you were writing the book, was it around 2006? Is that why you, you used that year in the book itself? Or? Uh, no, I, I used 2006 because um, I wanted to write about Detroit before things were bad everywhere else. So it was really about, you know, it's bad in Detroit, but not bad everywhere else. I see. And also, it's going to get way worse. Because I wouldn't, no, you, that, that's always interesting to me that, that you know, the, the story ends, but you know from history that there are bad times coming. And I picked 94 for odd, odd reason, which was that uh, that's when the steel companies all went out, or around then. So I think Bethlehem especially filed in 94. So my point was we've been through this before. We'll, been through, we'll go through this again. And when, when did you work for steel? When was... I worked, um, I worked in a steel plant the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. It was a great motivating factor to go back to college. That was in the 80s. Yeah. Before the bankruptcies, but they were hurting. Yeah. And and do you remember um, motivating force? Was it just because of like what it what's required of That's you, like the day job. to the day? Think about the weather today. It's ninety some degrees. That's what it's. You're in one of these places. You're wearing heavy pants, steel toed boots, long sleeve shirt, gloves, helmet, glasses, and it's not ninety four degrees in the plant. It's way hotter because there's all that heat from the machinery. It's like you do not want to be there. And this is, was this a job that you took so that you could understand something more about the world? Or was that something that was, you know, like just, like, it was a summer like, job? Like the way the world would be with money, for example. Yeah, I mean, I took it for money, you know. I'd had my own, uh, growing up, I had my own lawn business. I cut lawns. But when I went away to college, I couldn't do it because I wasn't there in the spring and the fall. So I, I had to give that up and I found this thing. And then, and then the reading in college, all the books, and then the writing. Yeah, I actually was reading that. That summer was about when I started. Huh. Yeah. With the steel. Yeah, because you'd come home from that plant and just, you know, all you want to do is 
something not like being at the something plant. Something for your mind, maybe, right. at yeah. that point. Exactly. Well, Scott... I had never thought of that before, this conversation, but it was probably related. Thank, well, thanks for being here today and talking about Say Nice Things About Detroit. Thank you for having me. We are going to say nice things about Detroit for a long time to come. <laughs> You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm Dee Hetzel. Today on the program, Scott Lasser. Um, you can pick up a copy, a signed copy, hopefully, at Nicola's Bookshop. Say Nice Things About Detroit. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Tex. Thanks again to Scott. Thanks to you, all you out there. Until next time.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 18th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, a bomb blast in Damascus kills top military officials as fighting sends residents fleeing homes and seeking safety. People are leaving these affected areas, these、uh, areas that are under shelling, which are witnessing so much gunfire. They are leaving their homes、uh, for safer places. So we have、um, cases of internal displacement, as we call it. Fed Chair Ben Bernanke faces congressional questions on what U.S. officials knew about rate fixing by leading global banks. And we'll go to New York, where thousands of workers rally in support of striking utility workers. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Nell Abram with FSR in headlines. Hundreds of native Colombians forcibly evicted military forces from a temporary base in the western town of Toribio after troops failed to meet a withdrawal deadline. A coalition of indigenous leaders called for troops to vacate more than a dozen native reserves by Monday. Local leaders say they are tired of being caught in the crossfire between government troops and FARC rebels. Further, they say more than 500 members of the Nasa tribe. Have been forced from their homes in recent weeks due to violence between the two. William Pinkue is a member of the Native Guard. These are sacred ancestral lands. They belong to our community. Our autonomy as indigenous people will prevail. For them, it is not humiliation. I believe it's more of a dignified displacement through dialogue. President Juan Miguel Santos said the eviction was unacceptable, 